grown quest. I'm always winning, never quit. Always finish, never lose. I'm undefeated. He's a rapper, a model, a father, and if all goes to plan, even a future movie mogul. But before all that, Roman Kress was a runner. In 2008, the Carvin-born Minnesota-raised sprinter became the first person to represent the Marshall Islands at the Olympic Games. In the first of our series, speaking with some of the Pacific's first Olympians in the lead-up to Tokyo, Roman Kress tells me how it all started. Yeah, my dad was in the Peace Corps for like eight years, I think, in the Pacific. Maybe six or so in the Marshall Islands. And that's where he met my mom, got married out there, brought her back here. I think we first moved to Austin, Minnesota. That's where he was from, a small town in uh, about two hours from here in Minnesota. And then we, he got a job here as a proofreader, and we've been in Minneapolis ever since. They're still here. They're still in South Minneapolis, where I grew up. But, but growing up in Minnesota, uh, was that heritage and your knowledge of the Pacific, um, was that a part of your daily life with your family? Not really, because, you know, my mom was too busy trying to learn English and try to get uh, assimilated here. So we never learned Marshallese. I only learned it like little bits and pieces. So we were somewhat disconnected, my, my family being here in America, but definitely had some ties. We, I went to Marshall Islands periodically every three, four years. The last time I was there was in 2014 for the Micronesian Games, and I competed with my daughter there. I lo- I'm competing again next year. It's <laughs> my last one, my son and I this time. So I'm kind of passing the torch, uh, more of a symbolic uh, gesture. Yeah, and that next generation on, you mentioned your daughter who has also competed in the Olympics uh, and, and your son. So ha- have you passed on that heritage or has your mum passed on that Marshall Islands heritage and, and culture to them or, or tried to? Yeah, oh yes. I mean, she's she's still pretty strong into the culture. She just hasn't been back I don't think she hasn't been back since 2014, too. But the, th- the thing is, too, with the Marshallese culture, it's, 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 it's kind of the cultural aspects of the Marshallese have been disappearing over the last 50 years because of um, westernization. And a lot of the Marshallese people, based on the, the compact agreement with the U.S., many Marshallese have moved to the United States. So, I mean, there's, I think the population now has got to be, what, 50,000 or so in the Marshall Islands. It once was much more. We have a lot of hotbeds of Marshallese communities here in America, like in Arkansas, California, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, and Texas. That's another one. But mostly on the western uh, western part of the United States. Um, So when she goes to visit family, she doesn't have to go all the way to, uh, also Hawaii, of course, she doesn't have to go all the way to the Marshall Islands anymore. She sees a lot of her close family members in Oregon or Portland's one of them, um, but Texas, she goes to visit family. Oklahoma, I forgot to mention that. She just goes to the West Coast to see her close family because they're not even in their islands anymore. And of course, as you say, you've lived in America since you were 10 months old. So w- when did running become a thing for you? You know, I had a, a neighbor of mine. He, he, he competed in a lot of sports and he was always trying to encourage me to compete with him because we played a lot of games and stuff outside and I was pretty fast, as was he. And he kind of talked me into it, talked to his mother, Talked to my father and got me involved. We started playing football and also track, basketball. So that's kind of what I was immersed in at an early age was basketball, football, and track. I think I was, I was 11 years old when I first started competing. And I, I seen success right away on a local level. <laughs> when I went to the regional uh, championships in America, I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. Because, you know, in Minnesota, it's cold here. And uh, usually you run for like two months out of a year, practice-wise. There was no indoor track at that time. And I think when I first started seeing success in track and field was when I started training year round right after high school. That's when I started seeing big results in my development. 
the idea or the notion of representing the Marshall Islands in track and athletics. Um, I guess the Olympic Committee was only formed, I think, 2001 and then became recognised, you know, five years later. So so that Beijing Games that you did compete in was was actually the first opportunity for anybody to be able to represent the Marshall Islands. Had had the idea of representing the Marshall Islands been something that you'd thought about or, or discussed prior to that? Or is it just when the oh, yeah. opportunity came up? I was one of the initiators of us getting membership because I was trying to very, very hard in 1999. And we were close. We were very close, but the Marshall Islands didn't have all their uh, ducks in a row to be recognized by the IOC. Uh, so my father and I, and we sent a lot of emails and Marshall Islands wasn't organized at that point in time, but they did. Uh, and by that, this is when I actually qualified um, B standard at that time. I was, I was in peak form around that time, 99, 2000. And um, after that, I, I competed. I still competed in my college years, but I didn't have uh, the same desire because when we didn't make it to Sydney, I just kind of just left it alone. I didn't think about Olympics anymore. And then 2004 passed by in Greece. And then 2008 came around and they finally had membership. I remember it was it was 2008. It was in like March or April. And I got a call. I believe it was in the middle of the night. It was like 4 a.m. or something. And they asked if I wanted to compete. It was a, a, the Marshall Islands uh, Olympic Federation co contacted me. And they asked uh, if I wanted to compete. And I was like, well, I'm not even in shape anymore, man. So I'm like, like track and field shape. I was still in shape. But I wasn't in track and field shape. I was like, well, I, yeah, I'll do it. You know, but it was kind of bittersweet because I felt like I should have been in Sydney in 2000. I qualified and I didn't feel like I deserved it in 2008. It was more like a charity, how I looked at it as. The 100 metres obviously is one of the glamour events of an Olympic Games or, or of a track meet. So um, I think 10.39, is that your PB? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and so as you say, that was around that turn of the century time, 1999. And, uh, and then when you finally made it to, to Beijing, I think 11.18. So considering such time had passed, were you relatively yeah. happy with that performance considering you were... I think in your thirties, no. Bonnie. I was I was very disappointed. I, I I thought for sure I should have ran under eleven for sure. When you I jumped back into it immediately, like around end of April, and I you know I had what May, June, July. I had three months, maybe three and a half to get prepared. I knew it wasn't realistic because I'm a very logical person. I knew I just I was just happy to put that on a resume and, and kind of put that um, to rest in my track and field career because it was it was shortened. It was a very quick rise and fall. You know, I pulled my hamstring in 2000, January 2001, and I just never ran the same ever again. That really hurt me because I think in 2000, in the year 2000, I was, I was ranked 11th in the world in the 60 meters and in the 55. So I didn't ever have the chance to develop. I was doing that stuff on my own. I mean, I didn't really have any coaching. I didn't have anything going on. So that was just raw talent. I was running six sixes and 6.2, 6.1 into 55. So it's just something I do think about periodically and what if, what could have, but I'm, I'm happy for what happened. And I think everything happened for a reason. And so you finally did make it to Beijing. You finally were representing the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands were finally represented at the Olympic Games, the elite sporting competition in the world. So what was it like to be there with some of your teammates who were also experiencing that for the first time? Um, to, to be there representing your culture, your, your country, and for you personally, I guess, to be the first of those athletes to actually be out there competing and um, to be creating history. It was amazing. I just, I remember how I felt. It was the same feeling I felt when I first competed for the Marshalls in Guam. That's my first international competition. And I was like 20, 21 years old. And when I went to Guam, 
I felt the same thing. Everybody knew about me, everybody was expecting all these big things, you know, and it didn't work out too high. One, I got a silver down there and got hurt in the, in the hundred, but I got covered in time to um, get a silver in the 200. But I remember that's that same feeling I felt when I was in the Olympics. Do you still keep in touch with any of the other competitors in your team from back then? Just Waylon. That's the only one I still uh, in touch with. And also our old uh, president of the track and field. I still keep in touch with him. I keep in touch with him and Waylon Muller, the flag bearer in uh, 2008. So. And I guess that was a unique situation too, that there was five athletes, including yourself, but but Waylon, he was the flag <laughs> bearer, but he didn't. He wasn't actually competing. So obviously there's a, a story behind that. He's more than a friend for me. He's actually like a, like a family member. We, we are very, very, very close. Um. It is, it is like my brother. And we both have very you know, these alpha male type of egos. If it would have been 2000 in Sydney and they would have gave him the hold the flag, I would have been pretty pissed off. <laughs> but 2008, I was like, yeah, he deserves it. <laughs> so we probably have been arguing about it, who should be doing it, but he deserved it. And I, and I, it was, if it wasn't for him, I would never had a chance to compete internationally. So I applaud him and I thank him for everything. Uh, of course, you have a family connection to the Olympics. You were the first Marshall Islands athlete and you know eight years later your daughter um you know had that same experience um competing in rio was that always on the cards did she sort of take to it like you did or how did that come about it wasn't the same i, I mean i for for some years i, I was obsessed with track and field They're, my kids are not like that it was more and i didn't force my kids to do track and field either they wanted to do it but i'm not going to force dedication and desire on them i mean either you have it or you don't you can't force anybody to do anything so they she competed casually and she, she liked competing. It was more of a social thing for her because she was competing uh, in high school. But she didn't have the same type of intensity that I had. I didn't like to lose. See, my daughter didn't care if she won or lost. She just, she just liked competing and liked being out there. But she didn't really care about the workouts either. So you had to you know, push her a little bit. And actually, I had a friend of mine uh, that actually still helps out. He's coaching my son right now. Uh, help, he was help coaching her because we butt heads too much, you know. So I was like, well, why don't you just do it? And I'll just kind of stand from afar because I was being too, I could be too hard on her. So she probably would have quit if I would <laughs> continue to, to train her back in uh, 2016. So Yeah. And so you went over to Rio and, and watched her. What was that like, you know, having experienced it yourself and then to to be watching your own daughter competing, even if she wasn't maybe quite as obsessed as you say you were? Uh, yeah. That must have been a really proud moment. I was. I, w- I was happy that she was uh, able to compete. She, she pretty much ended that chapter of her life right after. I think that all, all that pressure and stress for those year and a half or two that came with it, I think when she ran, it was actually her birthday too. She ran on her birthday at the 2016 Olympic Games and that's, that was her last race. She hasn't competed ever since. And I was trying to get her into these Micronesian Games and I don't think that's definitely not in the cards <laughs> for her. I think she is done. But my son is going to compete, and hopefully I can get him into uh, 2024. seems pretty early. It's a possibility. But 2028 in L.A., I think he, my son will be there. If, if he continues to train, he'll be there. To have a father-daughter or parent-child uh, uh, competing in the Olympics, there can't be – I'm sure there's a few, but there can't be too many of those. To have three would be would be taking it to another level, wouldn't it? Yeah. You know, I was trying to – I was in shape. I was preparing to compete in 2016, but there was a lot of politics involved, and they wouldn't let me run, even though I was the fastest male. I'm still the fastest male in the Marshall Islands now. It's not, it's not a question about it. I mean, I could still run low 11s right now, but they just wanted to put somebody else on the stage, which is fine. I don't, I don't care. But um, I was hoping to compete, both of us, and hopefully we'd make history. That's what I was really trying to do, and I was trying to get sponsorship for that at that time, too. Father-daughter, competing. I don't think it's ever been done in the Olympics that I looked at. I researched. I didn't see it, but 
I was hoping that would happen and it didn't. So probably a little bit less stress though. None of you competing in uh, Tokyo this year, obviously with everything that's happened uh, with COVID over there, is it probably easy to step back on the couch and just think, oh, I'll watch this one on TV perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's fine with me. How much training do you still do? I train six days a week, but it's more cosmetic, I would say. It's not really for performance. I don't train like that anymore. It's just more like bodybuilding type stuff. I gained some weight. I mean, I'm still lean, and but it's not necessarily – it looks it looks good. I look like I can compete, but I'm not – track and field as a whole. I'd have to lose 20 pounds probably. I'd drop this muscle. And you mentioned cosmetics. You've got a bit of a – a background in modeling. I think you've got a shoot coming up tomorrow. So how, how did you fall into that? Um, how do you keep your ego in check with that sort of work? And, and, uh, and what does it entail? How long have you been doing it? It's not really a glamorous thing for me. And the modeling here has definitely changed from how we probably grew up looking at it, where it was very, you know, very cosmetic. And it's, it's, it's just more functional. So they look for people like they, I usually pass for um, Hispanic. So they're looking for a Hispanic person for a, a for a Walmart ad or a Target ad or something. So I'll just go in and it's, it's nothing really glamorous about it. Like how we do it. It's just, I just go in there and I'm just kind of just posing like I'm wearing a business suit and I'm pretending on my, on my computer or something like that. So it's, it's just more of this like a uh, role playing more than anything. So, and a lot of times I get passed over because they think I, from what the, the agency say, they say I'm too handsome. They're looking for more regular people. So a lot of the models now are just regular looking guys, regular looking females. They're not looking for the glamour anymore. It's, it's the, the whole industry is changing, you know, they're looking for everyday user friendly kind of people. I mean, as far as problems go, that's a good problem to have, right? <laughs> you know, people... Yeah, I, I got into it in 2004. A girlfriend of mine at that time told me to get involved and I, I got into it and there wasn't really much work going on in Minnesota. Uh, wasn't very diverse. Mostly the most of the models were Caucasian. Uh, that were getting work and i think things have changed the market market started diversifying around 2010 i got back into it and i i got with a couple other agencies that were more ambitious and i started getting work and i've been pretty busy with modeling over the last couple of years so it's 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 growing and it's becoming uh you know i probably could probably do it full time if i really wanted to i just I just don't really have anything in um, all in one hat. I, I, I wear a lot of hats. So I just, that's just how I am. I just like to do everything. I do a lot of different things. What do your kids think of it? My son, he's signed with two agencies. He hasn't had much. He had like one job so far. Uh, I tried to get my daughter. She didn't get picked. Um, and like I said, it's, it's not necessarily about, uh, are you good enough? It's just what they're looking for. You know, what, there's a certain prototype they're looking for, either tall, short, whatever. If you meet the needs, then you come in. I just got in at the right time and I got connected and I'm very professional how I deal with myself. So it's, that's why I continue to have opportunities. So. What's, the, what's the biggest uh, thing you've landed in terms of uh, companies or brands or, or whatever? In terms of companies, I've been with almost pretty every major company in the United States. I mean, it's, I've been in a lot of different shoots, Best Buy, Target, um, Macy's, a lot of different things, but we, we don't look at it in terms of the company. We look at it in terms of how much they pay. So it might be some obscure company nobody's ever heard of, but they're paying a ton of money. Like, oh, that's the best one right there. So we don't care about like, this Target. I did a couple of short spots with Target, but some of these other companies I did, like this one, that's, I'll never forget the one I did in South Dakota. They paid a lot of, they gave, they gave you a, a huge check and they gave us cash up front too. I mean, it was, it was a ton of money. It was for a fitness line they had through this, hospital this big hospital um brand out in uh, south dakota north dakota area that's it's actually slowly expanding into minnesota that's one of my most memorable ones 
and that was like a two-day shoot. That was pretty fun. So, so they would sometimes fly you out or put you up, you treat you like a king for a day or two? Sometimes, yeah, I get those periods, sometimes. But Minnesota's not bad because we have a lot of Fortune 500 companies here. For whatever reason, they're based out in Minnesota. So there's a lot of opportunities here for modeling. So that's why there's like 10 agencies here in Minnesota. There's, there's, there's work. You've also expanded uh, into music, uh, releasing an album earlier this year. How long have you been uh, dabbling in that? And, um, <laughs> that's a crazy story. You know, I've, I've been managing artists since... 2005, 2006. But these guys, you know, they're not as ambitious as, as I am. They're, they're very talented and probably I would say more talented than I, but I, they just don't have the business sense. And that's what makes a lot of these rappers that people think are, that you see about the popular ones, they think they're just, they're just rappers. These guys are very smart individuals. They know the business mind and business sense of music. These guys are procrastinating about nobody wanted to release anything. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it myself. So I, was, I just jumped in. I just jumped to it last year. That was the first time I jumped into it. And I got another, I got one, I'm, I'm dropping another album. Be my third one. I probably, maybe me, my last one. So it's, you know, I have a lot of bucket lists. I'm also shooting a, uh, doing a big project for this movie my colleague and I wrote. And we're going to shoot that this summer too. So hopefully we can get that on uh, Netflix or Hulu. Because we're going to hit the, inter- the international film festivals next summer. So we're going to be spending the whole winter uh, post-production and getting that ready. So hopefully we hit the streaming sites and hit the film festivals and hopefully we can make some money on the back end of that too. So it's be my acting debut too. So can, can you give us a little hint as to what, what it's about? Oh yeah. Uh, the, the movie is, uh, it's a premise based on, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the CIA and uh, funneling drugs into inner cities here in America. But that was, uh, I think there's a couple of movies that were made about that over the last 10 years. And it's starting to get more, more notice about it, especially now. There's a couple of, sh- uh, there's a show on Netflix actually about it, but the CIA was funneling drugs into black communities here in America. And a lot of the black communities have suffered since then, since the 1980s. So we took that premise and there was a guy that pretty much the, one of the starring actors, he, um, his mother uh, died. Um, through an overdose. So the, the, the kid, um, he was like maybe like eight or nine, 10 years old. He was harboring this um, his whole life. And he eventually uh, joined the CIA uh, after his military uh, stint. And then um, he was like, I'm going to go into rural America and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put meth, I'm going to sell meth into these smaller white communities. So in his mind, it was like payback for him. So I'm an FBI agent. I get called in to figure out what's going on because there's these mysterious deaths going on in these rural towns and people think it's Sasquatch killings. They think it's Bigfoot. So or what they say, I don't know what they have in New Zealand, but in Australia, they call it Yowie. But there's a, we have a big guy, he's going around and uh, he, it's kind of a CIA operative, they call it MK Ultra. that they do this mind control. This guy's going out there, he's killing people. These people, um, it's actually based on meth deals and that's, their, that's how they're using that as a scapegoat. They're using this Bigfoot. And the townspeople think it's like they're, these people are disappearing because of Bigfoot, but it's actually because of these meth deals gone bad or whatever. And this guy has a network going on across the country and he's making a lot of money. And he's, it's, in his mind, it's like payback for what happened to his community. So he's going to get these white communities back. And uh, I get called in and my partner, we go in there and we try to figure it out. We find out it's nothing to do with Bigfoot. It's the CIA doing this. And gets real messy and it's a big fight scene at the end between FBI and CIA and we bring him back and we arrest him and then uh, he has his about face and he, he tells his whole spiel of why he did it and this and that so it's kind of crazy yeah, but we, yeah we, we wrote the script it's pretty cool where do you get the money to fund the film like that out of our pockets <laughs> so hopefully it's just one of those risks you got to take big risk big reward hopefully 
other actors, we don't really have to pay. Everybody's kind of volunteering because um, people believe in the project based on the script. They think it will, it will do, be successful. So we're hoping that we can make some money on the back end. And hopefully we'll do the our second movie, which we hope to shoot in the Marshall Islands, actually. So we're going to do something entirely different. Kind of the same thing. We kind of want to deal in that sci-fi realm because we got a little the Bigfoot Sasquatch thing going on. So we're going to do something with uh, another myth legend that's out in, um, in the Marshall Islands. They got these, uh, these little, little people is what they call it. Um, and we're going to try to do something like that. So we're trying to just kind of try to do something different, see what happens. Marshall Islands tourism might get on board. Yeah, well, that's what we need. That's why, that's why I need to go back because we got these beautiful islands and many of them are uninhabited. I mean, it could be the next Maldives. I don't, it's the same topography. So I don't know why their GDP is so low and the tourism is non-existent because Marshall Islands would be a perfect place to build some uh, an amazing resort. So I'm hoping to go out there and, and try to get some whether it's the Chinese businessmen or Taiwanese or the American or Australian, I don't know, but we have to do something with those islands. They're just sitting there and they're absolutely gorgeous and there's nobody's doing anything with them. So that's my plan. What do you miss about the Marshall Islands? Obviously living in the States for pretty much all of your life there. Uh, what, what is it you love about it when you go back there? What are the, maybe some things that you do miss uh, some little things? You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I've, I've spent very little time there, but every time I go there, I feel like I belong there. I don't feel like I'm. I, I don't feel like I'm supposed to leave there. I, I can't explain the feeling because I'm so entrenched and I've been in America, especially in Minnesota. But I don't feel. I feel like an alien here. Not that I've been mistreated by people. I mean, the people here are great. But I just when I'm there, I just feel like this is where I'm supposed to be, and it's been like that ever since I was a kid. And I never. Every time I had to leave, I never wanted to leave. So. That's what it is. I, mean, I love the smell of the ocean water. I love the, looking at the palm trees. I love the, the evenings. I love going to the bars at night. It's the partying, the friends, the family, the boats, the going to the uninhabited islands, doing barbecues, all day barbecues. We, we always had, I was always with Wayland. We always had great times. We'd, we'd go to karaoke all night long. I mean, good times, man. And uh, I cherish those moments. And that's why I feel like I belong. You know, it's always been like that.